come in. My name's Jamie. Uh, I lead the site here in Bradley Stoke. And um, if you're new to us, then we have been, over the last three or four weeks, just beginning a new series looking at the life of a character in the Old Testament, a king, actually, called David. Um, and uh, we're, we're picking up midway through probably one of the more famous stories in the life of David, which is a, a, a well-known battle with Goliath. So uh, we're picking up the story where um, Goliath is kind of the dread champion of this army, which has come to intimidate and invade the nation of Israel. And uh, for, for, for 40 days, he's been kind of lining up. The battle lines have been drawn, and he is coming out, and he is challenging somebody, anybody, from that Israeli army to come and to, and to fight him in a, in a hand-to-hand combat. And uh, he's, been, he's been kind of taunting them and intimidating them for a number of days. And so far, nobody has had the courage to step up and fight. So we'll, we'll pick up the story. If you want to follow along, um, then we're, we're in uh, 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, chapter 17. I'm going to start reading from verse 12. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. And in the days of Saul, he was the king at the time, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul into battle, and the names of his three sons who went into battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. And David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his sheep, to feed his father's sheep rather at Bethlehem. And for forty days the Philistine came forward, that's Goliath, and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. And also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. And see if your brothers are well, and, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they were all, and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the hosts were going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistine and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him, and they were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Tax exemption, in other words. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And all the people answered him the same way, so shall it be to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, the eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? 
And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? For I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not just a word? And he turned away from him towards another and spoke in the same way again. And, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, the king, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're but a youth. And he has been a man of war since his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a, a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. I'm just going to pray. Lord God, we want to hear your voice this morning. We want to hear your voice this morning. I thank you, Jesus. You said the words that you speak are spirit and they are life. And we just invite you. Would you come this morning? Would you speak deep into our hearts? Lord God, I, I'm, I don't mind, Lord God, what any, anybody thinks of what I say, of what I speak this morning. We want to hear your voice, Lord. We want to hear you speaking deep to us. We just invite you, God. Would you come and bring these verses alive, bring these truths alive, Father. Come and draw us closer to you. Amen. Amen. Okay, I want you to go on a little journey with me, just in your imagination. Uh, you don't need to close your eyes, or you suppose you might want to, but um, I'd like you to kind of put yourself back thousands of years into the shoes of this young lad. Maybe this young teen, we don't know exactly how old he is. And he's out, and he's out in the wilderness, and he's tending his father's sheep, David. Now, in those days in that culture, being a shepherd would have been a pretty lonely, pretty isolated existence. You might have been out quite some distance from the family home. You might have been sleeping out in the fields for days or, or, or weeks even on end. You'd have probably been quite smelly. There wouldn't have been a shower. There wasn't much to keep you occupied. There was no Netflix to watch. There was no social media to post uh, photos of your sheep on. There was nobody really around for company. It would have been a pretty kind of meager and isolating existence. Just imagine yourself there. You're up often at night keeping watch. And then suddenly, one twilight, you catch something out of the corner of your eye coming up behind you and you, and you begin to turn and you realize that it's a predator. It's, it may be, maybe it's a bear. I'm not talking about kind of cute fluffy teddy bear you find in the, in the kids' storybooks. I'm talking about a wild animal that has come to take one of your sheep. And I suppose if you got in its way, then it would take you as well. Or it might be a lion, not a, not a zoo lion, not a tame lion that's been pacing around Bristol Zoo for a while. I'm talking about a wild animal that is on the hunt. How do you feel in that moment? How are you going to respond in that moment? That is a challenge, isn't it? That is a great test. And I'm sure for all of us, I, I, well, I know for all of us, there have been many times and challenges and tests in our life 
which have stretched us beyond ourselves, that have stretched us to where we panic, to where we, to where we fear, to where we don't know where we're going with this, to where we don't know how we're going to respond, to where we don't know what to do. Maybe situations with our families, maybe in our workplaces, maybe illnesses, maybe bereavements, maybe losses, maybe times when we feel betrayed, where we feel attacked, maybe times when we feel tempted. It'll be different for all of us, the tests that we go through, but I don't know if anyone has ever faced, been face-to-face with a wild predator. Maybe you have, but I think sometimes looking at the challenges and the tests that David went through, it puts the stresses and strains of office life into, into perspective, for me at least. And so I think it's a great question for us to consider, well, why would God, why would a good father, as we've been thinking about these last few weeks, why would he allow David, or why would he allow any of us, for that matter, to go through such times of testing and challenge? Why would he put us through that? Why would he allow us to go through these very dark very dangerous seasons of life. I talked a little bit recently about how sometimes Christians respond by thinking, well, it kind of feels like God is punishing me. I don't know if, ever, if any of you have ever felt that. I'm, oh, I'm going through this season. I'm, I'm going through this sickness. I'm going through this, this awful time. It kind of feels like God is punishing me. And we talked a few weeks ago about how actually If we have trusted in Jesus, if we have put our faith in him, then we can be absolutely certain that that is not and will never be the case. What is the basis for such certainty? Actually, the Bible tells us the basis for our certainty is what Jesus has already done and accomplished for us 2,000 years ago on a cross. Because when Jesus came, he was born into this world. He lived a life of poverty, lived a life of humility, a life of serving, and then ultimately at the end of his life came and very intentionally, very purposefully, sacrificed himself on a cross. He told his friends countless times, this is not a mistake, this is not a tragedy, this is not an accident, this is the reason for which I came. I came to give myself as an offering. I came to step into the shoes of every single man, woman, and child that's ever lived and ever will live. And I came to bear the consequences, to bear the punishment that is due to you and to me for all the things that we have ever done wrong. And the Bible confirms that once and for all, it says in the book of Hebrews, that sacrifice, that punishment that Jesus bore will take away the consequence that is due to us who have put our trust in him. Romans chapter 8 says, Therefore there is no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. We can be confident when we go through trials, when we go through tests, that God has no desire to punish us because the punishment has already been paid in full a very, very long time before we were even born. So why then would a good father, why would a good father allow David or allow any of us for that matter to go through these seasons that we walk through, to face down the predator, as it were, to face down the lion or the bear or whatever it is that we are going through. I'd like to suggest that this story gives us at least one answer to that question. And that is that as we see, we begin to see how David learned, how David grew in those moments. As he learned in those moments of fear, those moments of testing, those moments of panic, he learned how to draw God into those battles into those situations. We learned that song last week, didn't we? 
This is how I fight my battles. That actually the weapons of our warfare, it says in, in, in one of the letters to the Corinthians, aren't actually, they're not the sling and the stone. They're not the, the, the physical thing, but they're prayer, they're worship. They're mighty in God. That actually we learn in those situations how we can pull God and draw God into that situation. And actually every time David did that, every time he activated, as it were, his trust, every time he leaned into God, every time through prayer and through worship, he fought that battle, he ended up taking ground. That's what happens, isn't it? When we fight and when we win battles, when we pull God and partner with God in our situations, we begin to take ground in our life. So the next time that he, fought, he faced down the bear, the next time he stepped up against this dread champion, Goliath, he knew what it was to partner with God. He knew what it was to pray. He knew what it was to lean into God. He knew what it was to trust. He had confidence that the God who delivered him once and twice and three times and four times would deliver him this time. He grew as a believer in God. And that enabled him not only to deliver himself, but to deliver a whole nation. And those times when, when David was fighting those battles, was learning how to pull God into every dangerous situation in private, when nobody else was looking, prepared him for that day that God was readying him for when he would fight Goliath. A wise man called Ben Welchman said a couple of weeks ago, who you are in private, who you become in private, becomes who you are in public. Amen? The person, the, the battles that you fight in public, the way that you learn to, 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 to press deep into God in, in private fuels who you become in public. And David learned to fight his battles. He learned that the battle was God's and not his own. And I just want to look, I want to make this very practical this morning. I want to look at four things in the life of David that he contended for just in his private world. Before anybody knew who he was, before he was even old enough to be conscripted into the army, while he was completely anonymous, he contended for some things. The first thing that we, uh, we see that he contended for was that he contended for worship. He contended for authentic intimacy with God. If you read through the stories of David, if you read through the Psalms, which is like a songbook in the middle of the Bible, dozens of which were written by David, we see someone who has the passionate heart of a worshipper. One of the most incredible, humbling, most beautiful things that God ever said about a person in the Bible, he said about David. And it, it, it's, it's there in the New Testament, actually. And, um, and the Holy Spirit says of him, that David was a person who was after God's heart. Isn't that amazing? That, that God would say of a person, this is somebody who is after my heart. I would love for God to be able to say that about me. Because David was contending not just for being a good believer, being a good Jew, being a good God, God follower, being noble, being pious. He was contending for more than that. He was contending for authentic intimacy with the presence of God. He was passionate. He was wanting to cultivate that kind of relationship with God, as the psalm describes it, in the secret place, when it's just him and God. And if you remember the story from a few weeks ago, there was a moment in David's life when the, the prophet Samuel came to him and poured oil on his head, anointed him. And at that moment, the Bible says the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, the very fullness, all the love, all the power, the, the very depth of everything that God is rushed upon David. 
And actually, that, that anointing was there to empower him. It was there for, for his rulership, for his, for, his, uh, for his military leadership, for everything that he would do in his life. But more than that, it was there that he could know God. And we begin to see through, through the songs and through the prayers that David wrote, his passion, how he cultivated, almost like cultivating a garden, he cultivated that intimacy with God in the secret place. He was a person who loved God's presence. He said things like this at the end of Psalm 16. He said to God, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He received the Holy Spirit, and and many of us will have this same testimony. He received the Holy Spirit, and at that moment, there was such joy, there was such satisfaction, there was such fullness that he knew there is nothing more than this that I will want for the rest of my life. He He would come in many years to have great wealth, to have great power, to have great authority, to have great fame. But even when he stumbled, actually, there was always that greater desire for the depths of the presence of God. He was somebody who was not content just to go through the motions of having a quiet time, ticking off his three pages of Bible reading in the morning, rattling through his prayer list. He was contending for the presence of God. He said this in Psalm 63. He says, God, you're my God. Earnestly I seek you. My flesh faints for you. It's like I'm in a dry and weary land where there is no water. But he says, he makes his resolution. He says, my soul will be satisfied in you. He contends for it. He fights for the presence of God. And whenever he doesn't feel like he's in that place, he will never be content. He says this in Psalm 42. He says, just just like the deer pants for flowing streams, my soul thirsts for you, O God, for the living God. When can I come and appear before my God? This was the cry of David's heart every morning. I think I told you the story a few months ago. I, I read of a, of a particular pastor, and someone came running up to him after a big kind of stadium meeting and said, Oh, Pastor, I want to thank you so much. You laid hands on me in 1970, whatever it was, three, I think. And I just want to thank you that, that, that in that moment I was filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit. And the pastor was really excited and said, Wow, that's, that's, that's amazing. Tell me what, what, you know, what's been happening in your life since then. And the man looked at him a bit blankly, like, Oh, well. Nothing much, I suppose. But I I just wanted to thank you for praying for me, for the experience. What a tragedy, isn't it? What a tragedy. This was the tragedy of Saul. Actually, we haven't read this bit, but if you go back in the story, the Holy Spirit anointed Saul in just the same way that he did David, but he didn't cultivate, he didn't fight, contend for that intimacy in his inner world. I wonder what this means for you, practically. I wonder what this means for you. So first of all, David contended for intimacy with God when nobody was looking, when nobody was seeing him, when he wasn't leading anything. The second thing that David contended for was solitude. Maybe he didn't need to contend for it. Maybe it was thrust upon him. But I think in our modern world, it's something we would all need to contend for. Psychologists increasingly tell us that as a generation, we are starving. In the West, we're not starving for for nutrition, we're not starving for food, we're starving for something much more subtle, which is for solitude. That time alone where we mentally, emotionally, spiritually refresh and disconnect. And actually, it's, it's, it's not so much that we are never by ourselves. 
But actually, I, I, I heard from a guy called Cal Newport a great definition of solitude this week. He says, actually, solitude is not time when we're absent from other people. It's a time when we are absent from any other voices speaking into our life. So actually, you could, be, you could be alone in a great crowd of people and truly be by yourself, and yet you could be standing in the line at the supermarket or in your car or in your living room at home, actually under a constant bombardment of WhatsApps and messages and podcasts and books and, and other voices. And I think probably for the first time in human history, thanks to the power of 4G and smartphones, it has become possible for us to completely shut out solitude from our lives. It's not a healthy thing, psychologists tell us, not only for our mental health, but for our spiritual health. David knew what it was to get alone with God in the secret place. He knew what it was to cultivate intimacy and relationship with him when no one else was looking. And the thing is, if you want to grow in God in the secret place, then you need a secret place for the secret place, don't you? I like to call it the secret place for the secret place. Sometimes that is a hard thing to contend for. But Jesus said it's so important. He said that in Matthew 6. He said, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. I wonder when the last time it was that you got your hand on the door handle and shut the door, and I would add, turn the notifications off and just come and say, God, I'm coming into your presence. I'm coming to be with you. I'm coming to meet with you. It's the solitude that we need. He says, come shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And the father who sees in that secret place will reward you. And actually, this is a difficult thing in the modern world, isn't it? Even, even for, for those that are church leaders and, and, and other kind of spiritual leaders, actually, you might think, well, that would be easy. I remember listening to Dave Smith recently. Dave leads a, a quite a substantial church in Peterborough called Kingsgate. And he said, sometimes, actually, as someone who's a busy husband, a busy father, someone who is leading a church, he's in and out of lots of meetings, lots of appointments, lots of pastoral things, it can be incredibly difficult you might think it would be the easiest thing in the world for him to steal away and spend time alone with God, but it's not. He said, sometimes, actually, I, I just need to get out in my car and drive. And he's identified a whole bunch of places just, just out in the country where he can just go, and he knows that he can be alone with God when no one else is watching. Heidi Baker, many of you may have heard of, leads really an apostolic movement around the world, planting tens of thousands of churches. She's responsible for the, for the care of thousands of orphans in a, in a highly, densely populated part of Mozambique. And she says, I love the people, but I need to go away. I need to be alone with my father. And the only place, realistically, she can go is she just swims out in the ocean. <laughs> and she will swim out as far from shore as it is safe to go so that she can spend time just worshipping and receiving from the father. She says, if anybody tries to catch up with me, if anyone wants to speak with me, then I just swim further. <laughs> I just swim away from them. It's the solitude we need to contend for. The third thing that we see David really excelling in, contending in his private world, is, is for humility. Have you ever thought what a bizarre season of life this must have been for David? There he was as this young man. We don't even know how young he was. And he's out there in the field, minding his own business with the sheep. And suddenly a runner comes and says, oh, by the way, the whole village has turned out. We're having a banquet. You need to be there five minutes ago. And, and he comes and, and suddenly there's this, he comes up to, to his father's house and there's a big table laid and no one's sat out for dinner yet. And, and everyone's there. And suddenly he sees there's the prophet Samuel, this great man of God. He's like the de facto prime minister of the nation. And he's come there and there's all this celebration going on. And suddenly the next thing he knows is 
is Samuel's prophesying over his life. He's got him kneeled down. He's pouring oil on his head. The Holy Spirit, the presence of the living God of the universe is filling him. And Samuel starts talking to him about, you're going to be king. (laughs) But there's already a king. And then it's Monday morning. And he's back with the sheep. And nothing appears to be happening. And then the days and the weeks and the months roll by and nothing's happening. And then finally he gets a job in the palace as a servant. He plays music on the evenings. And he's probably thinking, well, I guess this is it. You know, God works in mysterious ways, hey? You know, maybe there's some kind of inroad for me here. And he, and he plays and he serves and he does well and he becomes well regarded. And then, and then the season changes and Saul goes off to war and there's a battle to fight and the Philistines are invading and David's back with the sheep. <laughs> and, and he only really enters this story, humanly speaking, because he's got cheese to bring. And his dad says to him, well, can you bring this cheese? And it's a lot of cheese. If you look at the measurements, if you look in the footnotes, there's a lot of cheese for him to carry. And, he, and he's probably thinking, I, I'm carrying the presence of the living God. I've been called to the leadership of God's great nation. And I'm carrying the cheese. <laughs> That's a lot of humility, isn't it, to cultivate. God was preparing him in anonymity for the humility he would need to lead a nation. I remember there was a time several years ago, and Debbie and I both felt very much called towards leadership, towards, uh, towards church leadership, church planting, which is something we very much intend to do in the years to come. And we, we, we went to speak to, to Nick Todd, who was, who was leading the church at the time, and we kind of shared some of the things that we felt God was speaking to us about, and, and he, he prayed with us, and, and we kind of weighed those things prophetically, and, and, and his, his kind of, his response, his conclusion was, yeah, this... This, this seems right. This seems good. And then he surprised us by saying, well, well hey, um, I think probably a really good first step would, would be for you to come on and, and join the, the, the leadership team of the church, as it was at that time. And I was kind of a bit taken aback, but, I was, uh, and, uh, but, but almost immediately I did. And, and in time, Debbie became part of that team as well. And, uh, and, and I was excited. I felt like actually I'd received an impartation from God. We'd received a call from God. Suddenly we're being commissioned by the person who was leading us. I was excited about doing this and that and launching this kind of initiative and preaching and all the different things that God would, would call us into as a family. We were going to move. We were going to travel. And within the space of about a month, three different people who knew nothing about that prophesied an identical prophetic picture to me. He wasn't the one I wanted, actually. The prophetic picture, I forget who they were, it might, be, it might have been some of you say here against them, I don't know. The prophetic picture was, was of a plant, and it was a, it was a kind of a, almost like a scientific botanical cutaway. So you could see the plant above, above the surface of the soil and below the surface of the soil. How am I doing for time? Eek. Right. And um, above the soil, the plant appeared not to be growing at all. It was just there as a couple of little leaves and a spindly kind of stalk. But below the soil, the roots were growing exponentially. And the people all interpreted this picture to me in the same way. And it was the way I didn't want to interpret it. And it was this, actually, in this season of life, you are not going to be doing anything visibly above the surface. You're not really going to be stepping forward in leadership. You're not really going to be stepping forward in ministry. You're not really going to be doing a great deal. Because this is a season that God has for you to grow under the surface. Deep down your roots into him to learn to get into his presence, to learn to soak in the glory, to learn to, to, to really hear from the word of God, to, to learn to depend and trust on him and grow in your intimacy with him. 
That, that, that wasn't the message <laughs> that I was after. Because I'm like, you know, God, God's just been speaking to us. God's called us. We're, we're going to go and take the nations, aren't we? That wasn't really the message I was after. And God was true to his word, actually. I didn't do a great deal <laughs> in those next few months. I didn't do anything. But I tell you what, it was one of the most sweetest, one of the most exhilarating, one of the most important seasons of my life where I learned how to abide in God's presence, where I learned how to draw deeply on him, where I learned how to trust, where I learned how to fight my battles depending on him, where I learned how to receive that revelation from the Bible, where I just grew. And I wouldn't exchange that season of intimacy with him for anything else in my life. You see, David trusted God. He, fo- he trusted that by focusing on knowing him and worshipping him, God would make a way. He didn't strive to build his own platform, even when he knew that he was called. He focused his attention on God. So David cultivated intimacy, worship, in his private world. He cultivated solitude in his private world. He cultivated humility. The final thing that David cultivated was a deep, deep dependence upon God. Do you see what what he said? Actually, I remember this story from school. I wasn't a Christian at the time, so I probably wasn't paying a great deal of attention. But I remember it from my RE lessons. I remember it from the children's Bibles. And I always remember it that David came in with a bit of a swagger into this situation. That he came in and said, well, (laughs) the bit of bravado. Philistine? What Philistine? I got this one. I can sort him out. I've got some skills. I've got some talents. There's the page. Here we go. That's actually not what happened. This was what David knew. He said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. You see, he had grown, he had fought his battles not to advance himself, but because he knew how to lean and trust in God. I like to say that actually a deep dependence on God is a mark of real maturity as a believer. You see, for those of you who are parents here, you will know that actually the goal, if I can put it like that, of our parenting is that we raise up and that we grow mature, stable, independent adults who are independent of us. So I've got a five-year-old and a three-year-old. If in five years' time they're not more independent of me than they are now, then something's gone wrong. If my kids, when they leave home, are not more independent of me than they were when they were 10 or 15, then something's gone wrong. Because actually, we're not trying to raise kids, we're trying to raise grown-ups who know how to stand on their own two feet, who can carry some weight on their shoulders, right? That's how it works in parenting. That's fine. But actually, the goal of God's fathering of us, of his parenting of us, is not that he would create increased independence from him, But actually, he would create believers who know what it is to be more dependent day by day. And actually, a mark of maturity is that we are increasingly laid down. We are increasingly centered on Jesus. That we learn how to partner with God. That's what David was doing in secret. I read an amazing little story. It's a very short story in the book of Exodus from the time of Moses. It's, It's tiny. You can blink and you can miss it. But actually, God was trying to teach Moses this same lesson. That the battle is the Lord's. And, and at that time, they were, they were coming through the wilderness, and they were under attack from an army, the army of Amalek. 
And God not only wanted to give them the victory in the battle, but he wanted to teach them something very important, that the only factor in this fight is God, 100%. And so God, in his genius, comes up with a very graphic demonstration. So he tells Moses to take his staff. Not very good staff, but... And he's standing, and, he, and he's, he can, he's standing in a high place. He can actually see the battlefield below him, and he can see the, the battle being played out. And God inspires him to lift up his staff, as it were, almost as an expression of prayer to God. And every time he does that, you can, you can begin to see in every little habit of hand-to-hand combat, every little skirmish, his people begin to prevail. And yet when Moses brings his arm down and kind of takes it away from that, that picture, that posture of prayer, so to speak, actually you can begin to see in every little skirmish, in every little bit of combat, the, the army of Amalek begins to win. And so it's that graphic demonstration. There is only one factor. The battle is the Lord's. He wanted Moses to know that. He needed Moses to know that. He needed his people to know that. In the end, they actually ended up propping him up. His arm became so, became so tired from, from, from lifting it up in prayer of hours of the battle that they actually had to prop his arm up. And of course, they had... A powerful victory. And this is what David was learning way away from everybody else when no one was watching. That he could fight his battles in God. Let's pray, shall we? Could I just invite the band to come back? Shall we stand together if that's okay? I just want to pray. I guess I want to pray really for us in two different ways. Maybe for some of us, you know you're facing down the line, you're facing down the bear, you're facing down that test at the moment. And actually, maybe God's speaking to you this morning that actually you, he wants you to learn to draw him in. He wants you to learn to trust in him. He wants you to learn to fight your battles in prayer and in worship, recognizing, like Moses did, there is only one factor in this fight, and it's him. And I'm not saying that's an easy thing. It wasn't easy for David to take that ground. But God wanted to give him that ground. Maybe you're here this morning and actually the challenge for you is cultivating that secret life in God. Maybe actually, just like David, you need to, God is calling you to learn to press into him. So just as the band begins to pray, I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit and I'm going to invite him to help us with these things. Oh God, thank you for your presence. Would you come? Would you come amongst us right now? Just as we worship, as we pray. God, for all of us walking through tests, when we don't know why, when it's like like that song, Lord God, when we need a lighthouse. God, we want to bring those things before you. Lord, we've been struggling away on our own. We all know what it is to be, to be fearful. We all know what it is to struggle away on our own. God, we want to take ground in our lives. We want to draw you in. Every single person right now, Lord, let us draw you into that fight. Lord God, let us learn what it is to be confident that the Lord will deliver. God, would you do that in our hearts? Would you put that in us this morning? God, we pray. Every single one of us, we feel the, the conviction of your spirit, the drawing of your spirit this morning. Come away with me. Come and spend time. Cultivate that time in the secret place. Get alone. Get our hand on the door handle. Turn the phone off. Come and be in my presence. Oh, we long for your presence, Jesus. We long for your presence, Holy Spirit. Lord God, like David, we say we're thirsty for you. It's, it's like in a dry and, and weary place where it's like there's no water. God, we don't want any dry ground in our 
hearts anymore. We don't want any dry ground in our lives anymore. Would you come and refresh us? We just turn to you. Help us. Lord, we, I just pray for those who don't have a place to go. Would you give them a place to go, Lord? I pray for those who don't have time to go. Those who've got kids, those who've got work, those who've got pressures, those who've got opposition. Give us time and place. As we draw near to you, God, draw near to us. Be with us as we worship God.